Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim, coming to you today from KVCR in the Inland Empire. This hour, we'll talk with a familiar voice, NPR All Things Considered host Mary Louise Kelly. Kelly has reported from war zones and hostile nations. She's made headlines for pressing then-Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on Ukraine. She's been living with hearing loss, all while raising two boys who are or are nearly college age, It Goes So Fast is the title of Mary Louise Kelly's memoir. She joins us after this news. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Many of us have listened to Mary Louise Kelly, host of All Things Considered. We've heard her probing questions, her empathy for her interviewees, the weight of her knowledge and experience as a former national security reporter being helicoptered into war zones. In her new book called It Goes So Fast, Kelly brings us into her life outside NPR studio walls, where she's trying to make it to her son's soccer games, facing hearing loss and ending marriage and grieving her father's death all while trying to show up for the final year before her oldest leaves for college. She calls it the year of no do-overs. And Mary Louise Kelly joins me now. Welcome to Forum. Mina, it is a great pleasure to be with you, and thanks for that lovely introduction. Oh, you're welcome. It is an honor to talk to you, Mary Louise. I have wanted to for so long. I've I've long admired your your work, the way you interview, the way you report. And Oh, uh, thank you. I'm grateful <laughs> for that. Thank you. So it really was amazing to get this insight into this this part of your life and to hear about hear about things that that weigh on you including you know the fact that there are things that you want do-overs for what what are those things (laughs) i mean you know i think if you listen to all things considered because of the magic of our producers and editors and engineers it sounds like we totally have our act together and (laughs) i must just have my act together and you know have figured it all out and the reality could not be farther from that um you know in our live interviews and live coverage people will listen to me figuring things out in real time along with you as the news is moving and yeah this book has been an exercise 
in confronting the very obvious reality that um, it is really hard to have a challenging, demanding job that I love and want to do my best at and also show up and be fully present for my children. And I have juggled that as, you know, so many working parents have for 19 years now. My oldest is 19. And it really just came to a point for me when my son was heading into his senior year of high school last year. And all of the choices that I had, you know, made in the moment and thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll make a different choice next year, uh, you know, but I'll, I'll show up for this one thing now. And then, you know, next year, we'll, we'll sort out how I do this other thing. Suddenly, there were there were just no more next years. And it, um, it both brought home to me just the weight of all of the trade-offs I had made that got me and my family to that point and brought into very sharp relief. Okay, if you're going to make a different choice, you got to make it like right mm. now. <laughs> Yeah. And I love how some of the things that you have wanted to show up for are so simple, things like soccer games or or speeches that your kids gave or some kind of presentation and things like that. There's this really lovely thought that you have about how it isn't like there was some big event or moment in your kid's life that that you think about as, oh, I, I really wished I'd shown up for that and I may not have a chance to do that over. But that it is, I think, as you say, just an accretion of small moments. Um, yeah. yeah. Can you talk about about that reality? The, well, uh, like we all know this in the abstract, right? We all know that it's the the small decisions and small moments that add up and together make a life, make the life that we are choosing to lead. Um, but in my daily, just you know, frenzy, trying to get everything that needs to get done at home done, and then show up uh, and, and get everything that needs to get done for all things considered every day, it's you don't stop and think about those choices and how they are adding up. And for me, it's true. I I'm speaking to you from the the heart of the NPR newsroom right now, and um, in a couple of hours, I will be stepping into Studio 31, our main studio, where all things considered, we'll go out live, um, coast to coast. And I have, I have, when the situation demands, stood up in the middle of that live show and said, "I'm really sorry, but I've got to go." I mean, I remember one moment <laughs> sitting there, I was sitting, it was Ari Shapiro was co-hosting me with me that day, which I will never forget because I the look on his face I can see now. But I was sitting there, we're anchoring the live show, we've got all this live stuff coming up, but a text came in on my phone and it was from the babysitter and it started, hi, we're in the emergency room. And I oh thought, yeah, I got to go. Yeah. Um, and I looked at Ari <laughs> and said, can you can you just take on the whole rest of this? And the you know they're looking at me, the studio engineer and director have these startled looks. And I said, I'm really sorry, but I'm out of here. Um, those decisions... It doesn't feel like it in the moment, but those are actually the easy ones. When your kid is in the emergency room, um, they need you, and you stand up and you run. And for me, it's been the accumulation of all the decisions that are are not so black and white, that feel like this just vast gray space, um, where it's not the end of the world if you miss, you know, whatever small thing it is, whatever play date or whatever field trip it was that day or whatever soccer game, which has been the defining passion of my kids' lives. Um, <laughs> but over time, they add up. And um, and that has, uh, yeah, that is, was what I was wrestling with as my oldest went into high school, or senior year of high school, and I just thought, I want to kind of grapple with this in real time. And so I wrote last year in real time um, as it was 
unfolding week by week and month by month as that clock. I felt this clock just ticking down. First it was months and then weeks and then days until until life as we had known it um, for 18 years was going to be over. It's so believable that it's a clock ticking down, right? Because your your life is so much, your work is so much focused on time, hitting timestamps, posts, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, you wrote that you had no regrets about going to work, saying yes to opportunities like reporting from North Korea, Iraq, or Ukraine. But you also write that you regret leaving your sons behind. Do yeah. you see those as contradictory things? Totally and utterly contradictory, and yet they are both true. <laughs> um, yes. I have thought so many times about decisions I have made to get on a plane. There's one I write about in the book that's a specific trip that I remember where I was in Pakistan for two weeks. And my kids were really little. Um, they were one and three at the time, and my youngest, the one-year-old, wasn't walking yet. And I left for two weeks, um, and it was a great reporting trip that just was so rich with material. And at a moment when Pakistan was front and center in the headlines, and the hunt for Osama bin Laden was on, and there were questions about Pakistan's nuclear program, questions which remain, but they were very much uh, on the front pages of newspapers at the time. And I found I had such a better understanding of the tensions in play and and the dynamics of the U.S.-Pakistan relationship uh, as I reported that trip. And I hope that our audience did as well um, through listening to the stories that we were able to bring them, which is, you know, to say it was a really worthwhile work trip and I'm really glad I went. And yet I have since learned um, that my youngest had been very, very sick, um, sicker than I had realized. And when I learned the full details of his medical experience and have just sat with that, I thought, you know, would I have gotten on that plane if I'd known I had nearly lost him mm. <laughs> a few months before that trip? And I, I will be honest and say the answer is yes, I still would have, and mm. not just because he's he was healthy, he was fine, he was well cared for, well cared for. He was still not walking when I got back; he was still crawling, so I didn't miss that. But it is true, I am not, I do not regret having gone. I do not regret loving my job and being true to it. Do I regret leaving my babies at home? Yeah, and I still do every time I go, even though they're now big teenagers who tower over me. Yeah, it's it's so true being in the contradiction and allowing ourselves to be in the contradiction can be such a hard thing, but you describe it really beautifully. We're talking with Mary Louise Kelly, and I'm sure you listeners would like to join the conversation. If you have questions for Mary Louise Kelly, you can email them at forum at kqed.org. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can tell us if there's an interview or a moment uh, that Mary Louise Kelly of Mary Louise Kelly that stands out to you that you want to share, or if you're resonating with the bargains that we make with ourselves when we miss a family moment because of work. You can tell us about those experiences for you as well. You know, Mary Louise, I was really touched by the the description um, that you give of your hearing loss. And in many ways, I felt like you are sort of constantly confronting the realization of things you miss um, through yeah. the fact that you experience hearing loss. For example, you describe for 
for us a moment of picking up your boys from camp that first summer when you had Aww. hearing aids and they're chattering away in the back seat. Talk about that moment and why it stands out for you. I had not realized that I had severe to profound hearing loss in both ears, which I do. Um, I knew that it felt like everyone mumbled all the time. I knew that I couldn't watch TV without the subtitles. Um, I knew that I kept getting into arguments with the FedEx delivery guy who kept insisting he'd rung the bell and tried to deliver a package. I'm like, you couldn't have. I was home. I would have heard it. And that happened enough that I thought, huh. Um, When I got hearing aids, which was a decade ago, um, I was in my early 40s, and there were so many things I hadn't realized I hadn't heard. I Just leaving the audiologist's office that first day, I stopped in my tracks and was like, what is that weird noise? And realized it was my footsteps on this tile floor walking to the mm-hmm. elevator. And I must not have been able to hear that in years because um, I didn't even recognize the sound. And there were many moments like that, perhaps the most profound of which is the one you just nodded to, Mina, which was... I picked up my boys from camp and, you know, strapped them into their booster seats um, in the back seat <laughs> and were driving off and they were giggling about something that had happened in camp that day and chattering and just, you know, um, and I realized I can hear them and they must have been doing this for years and I must have been, you know, aware that they were conversing I and mean, I could see it in the rearview mirror, but... I just hadn't realized, oh, wow, everyone else can hear that, and I haven't, and I've missed all the little moments of whatever they were giggling about in the back seat, and I felt, I felt such joy, I can hear it now, and also just such loss at, at everything that I must have missed. We're talking with Mary Louise Kelly. Her new book is It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. And we'll have more with Mary Louise Kelly and you, our listeners, after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Mary Louise Kelly, NPR's All Things Considered host about journalism, yes, but also about 
parenting, about hearing loss, about a year of no do-overs when her eldest is about to go to college the senior year of high school, and Mary Louise realizing that their time is running out for all the things that she intended to do but missed because of work. And you, our listeners, are sharing similar experiences. What bargains have you made with yourself when you miss a family moment because of work? You're sharing your thoughts, questions, and reflections on things that Mary Louise Kelly has said. This listener tweets, thanks for this, Mary Louise. I'm in my early 60s experiencing hearing loss, tinnitus, and an ear infection 10 years ago. Uh, yeah. And it makes me feel a little more normal to read about your experience. <laughs> Best wishes to you. Totally, totally normal. And my public service announcement of the day would be just to say, you know, none of us hear the way we did when we were 16, unless you are 16. Um, and that hearing aids, to me, have been just no big deal. And they change your life. Um, so I encourage everybody to go get tested um, yes. and just understand what the baseline is that you're working from. But that said, it sounds like hearing aids are different than, say, putting glasses on. You say that listening, even with he hearing aids, still requires serious concentration. Yeah, <laughs> Can you describe what that's like to carry on a conversation? Well, so I'm talking to you right now wearing hearing aids in both ears, and I anchor all things considered wearing hearing aids both ears. I couldn't function without them. Um, I'm also wearing contacts, and I couldn't see anything without them. And uh, they are very different in that, you know, if you need glasses and you get glasses and you put them on, you can suddenly see. It's magic. With hearing aids, it's I have found the experience different. Um, it's not an immediate, uh, like a switch flipping. Um, it takes time to get used to them. It takes time for your brain to relearn pathways that it might have forgotten if you've gone undiagnosed for a little while, as I did. Um, and yes, it's not it's not perfect. I still can't hear the way, uh, you know, someone with normal hearing does. And I have tried to explain it by telling people, to me, English has become it's almost, you know, speaking English, it's it's almost as though I'm speaking a foreign language that I speak very, very well, but not completely fluently. And I'm my brain is having to do a kind of little catch-up mental translation. I'm like two or three words behind in a lot of conversations and trying to slot things together through context. Um, and that's exhausting. <laughs> it's just yes. exhausting. And that's even wearing hearing aids. And the temptation can become to, to check out when you're at a cocktail party and it's hard to hear or a crowded restaurant and it's hard to hear. Um, the irony is that in my day job, um, <laughs> working in the studio at NPR, I can't quite explain why. But I can hear. It has not mm. been problematic. Partly it's that, you know, I'm speaking to you right now from a beautiful, professionally soundproofed studio. There is no competing background noise that my brain is working to filter out. And I'm wearing professional headphones that I can turn up as loud as I need. So that helps. It's been a little more challenging to do my job out in the world to report from... Uh, out and about in the field in, in our country and around the world. Um, but so far... My producers have been phenomenal and have helped me make certain accommodations, and we keep being able to get it done. So knock on wood, long may that continue. Yeah, well, that explains it, because I'm thinking, wow, in a job where what you're doing always is listening publicly, <laughs> Yeah, you know, how, how, we, how we make that work. I, I guess the other thing that I was curious about is when we're listening, we're not just hearing words, but we're hearing the emotionality of the speaker, the shifts in tone the 
the processing that they're doing, maybe the defensiveness that they might mm-hmm. have after a question. Does that also get harder or feel harder, or does that actually come through despite the... So in my case, and I can't speak for everyone with hearing loss, in my case, that is totally fine. In my case, interestingly, it's also not really that much a function of volume. My hearing aids do make things louder, and I can turn them up, um, and that helps. But the main thing in my case, which is not true of everyone in hearing loss, is I can't distinguish very well between consonants. Um, I can hear the words going by. They're almost at a normal level in terms of volume. I can hear all of the emotion in someone's voice, but I can't hear, are they offering me a cut of coffee or a cub of coffee? Um, You know, I'm guessing that they're offering me a cup of coffee because that would be a normal thing to offer. And from the context, I can figure out that that is what you're offering me. But And I feel like I can hear the difference when I say that to you, Mina, but... um, Devoid of context, I I can't a lot of the time. Well, we've got calls coming in for you, Mary Louise, and let me start with Ben in Castro Valley. Hi, Ben. You're on. Hi. Um, uh, pleasure to get the chance to ask this question. Um, I was struck by your comment about how it's easy to make decisions about dropping work to go to the emergency room, but hard to um, make a decision when it's kind of more everyday stuff, softball games, soccer, et cetera. Yeah. Um, softball in my case. Um, the, I was wondering if you had a process. Uh, when I find that I kind of am overwhelmed with the details and the decision-making, it's good to have like a process to fall back on uh, to make the decision. And I was wondering if you had sort of a, a me- mechanical process that you fall back on in situations when it's hard to make the decision. Hi. So that's such a great question. And thank you for it, Ben. I do have certain rules that I've set for myself. Um, Some of them are really basic, like when the job and the kids come into conflict, the kids come first. Um, They just do. And that has helped govern some decisions. Uh, Like you may have heard me a few moments ago talking about, you know, a, a text coming in from the babysitter in the emergency room and I'm on air. So it's not really the most convenient moment, but the kids come first. So I'm going to stand up and and go take care of it and help my kids. Um, And I have, I have tried to be true to that. What that actually looks like in practice can get fuzzy. Um, I have never been based in some of the places I would love to be based overseas. My passion is foreign policy and national security. And I have, as Pentagon correspondent and national security correspondent, uh, had amazing opportunities to travel all over and, and interview fascinating people changing their their communities, their countries. Um, but I've never been based in Baghdad or Kabul, as some of my colleagues have. Um And part of that is another rule I've set for myself, which is that there are a lot of people who can cover the news. There are a lot of excellent journalists out there. There's nobody else who can be mother to my two children. And I kind of have held that up when making decisions and trying to navigate my career, which, by the way, I have done every permutation from being super all-in, working around the clock in a demanding job, which I, I guess is the phase I'm in right now. But I have, you know, on multiple occasions, stepped away completely from the newsroom and not worked outside the home. Um, I've tried the, the four-day week. 
Um, if anybody listening has suggestions on how to actually <laughs> work a four day week, <laughs> I would, I would gladly take them. I've, I often found I was working a five or a six day week, but yes. getting paid for six a four days. day week. So I've tried it all. And, you know, what works one year is not what works for my family the next. I have been fortunate to have a career and have editors who have tried to support the decisions I was making that I needed to take um, for my family. And right now, you know, the interesting point in my life is that I have one child left at home and he's only there for another year. He's a junior in high school. Um, So we're looking at a year and change before he's gone. And I'm starting to look at, okay, like, what is this next chapter Mm going to look like when I can suddenly, for the first time in 20 years, travel and take assignments I want to take and... um, not feel guilty and not be worrying about sorting out carpal logistics at home because I have done that from war zones around the world, like been sorting what's for dinner on the table back in Washington when I'm when I'm in Ukraine or something. Yeah. Well, Caitlin tweets, I remember listening to Mary Louise Kelly on the eve of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Her poise, concern and professionalism when interviewing Ukraine residents was astonishing. She brought home how high the stakes were through the courage that the people we're demonstrating. We're getting a lot of admiration for your interviewing. Another listener tweets, Pete, Mary Louise really impressed me with the admirable way she interviewed Mike Pompeo, a model for NPR journalism. And we're getting lots of people wanting you to elaborate on your conversation with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, which I was really glad to see that you recounted uh, in your book, because it was an insane interaction, especially when he became so ruffled when you asked him about his lack of support for, for his diplomat. Marie Ivanovich. Marie Ivanovich, yeah. Do you want to remind us a little bit about what was going on at that time? Sure. So I um, I had been asking for an interview with then Secretary of State Pompeo for, for months and not getting anywhere and not getting anywhere. And then finally um, was granted an interview with Pompeo at the State Department in January of 2020 and was told, you're going to get 10 minutes. And I said, okay. So you're thinking in 10 minutes, there's like a zillion things you want to ask the Secretary of State, but in 10 minutes, realistically, you're going to get to a couple of them. So I wanted to ask about Iran because I was just back from Iran and had interviewed his counterpart, the then foreign minister uh, in Tehran, who had said some things that I wanted to allow Pompeo to respond to. Um, And I also wanted to ask about Ukraine because the other big thing happening in January of 2020 was that the U.S. Senate was in the middle of an impeachment trial, what became the first impeachment trial for then-President Donald Trump. And it had all to do with Ukraine and the people testifying as witnesses. Many of them worked for Mike Pompeo or had worked for Mike Pompeo before they had either quit in protest or been ousted from their jobs. So I didn't see how any serious journalist could sit down with Mike Pompeo and not ask about Ukraine. I told his team the night before, not you know specifically what my questions would be, but that there would be a bucket uh, on Iran and a bucket on Ukraine. So they knew that. They had it in writing. Um, when I went to actually interview him, he was very, very not happy to be asked about Ukraine, so unhappy about it that they cut the interview short and I didn't get the full 10 minutes. And we were packing up to leave and go file what we had. When uh, one of his 
aides reappeared and summoned me to his private living room. Um, This is the seventh floor of the State Department where the secretary's offices are. And he was waiting for me and he yelled at me um, and swore at me and challenged me to find Ukraine on uh, this really weird map um, that had no writing on it or borders. Um, And I pointed to Ukraine and he said, people will hear about this. And I agreed that they would um, because we intended to broadcast the interview in full that same day. And I thanked him for his time and left his office and went straight to the NPR booth that we keep at the State Department um, and filed the interview and within a few minutes was live on Morning Edition reporting it. Yeah. Well, yeah. William wanted to know what that episode told you about the Secretary of State, the Trump administration, or even covering politics. I mean, this is the person charged with steering our nation's foreign policy and, and modeling American values. Um, specifically charged with, with promoting and defending American values yeah. worldwide, including freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Um, yeah. That is that is true. Um, you know, I will say we. What I filed from the State Department that morning was the the full interview, uh, or not the full interview, but you know the the main headlines on Iran, and then we I think we played the full section that we had on tape on Ukraine, and then we had a big debate when I got back to the newsroom that day over what do we do with the swearing and the profanity and the map test portion of the interview. Do we report this? Um, because my goal in any interview with the Secretary of State is you know, not to try to embarrass someone or do a gotcha moment or any of that. It's you know, to share information with our audience that's going to deepen our understanding of what U.S. foreign policy is. And I thought about it and then thought, you know what, here's another rule that I've tried to live by as a journalist, which is just say what you know and how you know it. And people can make up their own minds what they want to think about it. And in this case, I thought there was value in Americans glimpsing how little value our top diplomats seemed to place on the relationship with Ukraine, which then, as now, was dominating foreign policy conversations. I thought there was value in Americans glimpsing how our top diplomat conducts himself behind closed doors. And... So I called the State Department and said, we plan to report the map test and everything else. And do you have any further context or comments? They didn't provide any. We aired the interview. It made headlines worldwide. And the next morning, on State Department letterhead, Mike Pompeo released a statement calling me a liar Mm -hmm. and suggesting that I had set up the interview under false pretenses and had you know, agreed that I would only ask about Iran, which was demonstrably untrue because I had the email exchange with his aides. Um, And also suggesting that instead of pointing to Ukraine, I had pointed to Bangladesh on this weird map. Um, And I then as now won't comment on that other than to say I pointed to Ukraine and Bangladesh is on an entirely different continent. It is thousands of miles away. (laughs) Well, this listener tweets something that I remember thinking a lot. This listener writes, was listening to you when you were interviewing Mike Pompeo. You handled it so well, but I wonder how you honestly felt Hmm. at the time. I mean, to be berated 
alone with the Secretary of State, given a pop quiz about a nation, how did it feel? So there were three of us in the room. I should oh, clarify. He, it was sorry. me, Mike Pompeo, and um, his press aide. His press aide. When I say alone, I meant he yep. didn't want you to bring your NPR yep. Yep. of your yep. NPR team. Um, you know, honestly, I think there were a couple of threads going through my mind. One was gratitude that we live in a country where there is a First Amendment and a constitutionally protected right to a free press. Um, as I say, I was recently back from Iran um, when I sat down with Pompeo, and I have reported from other countries, um, Russia, North Korea, spring to mind, where a contentious interview with a senior official can land you in prison um, or somewhere worse. And so I was very grateful to be in the United States and be a journalist here. I was also grateful to work for NPR. Um, I knew that my editors would stand with me. I was already thinking how, you know, if I report this and he denies it, then what happens? I mean, uh, he said, she said, Tiff, with the Secretary of State of the United States, and there are no witnesses except one who works for him. How's that going to play? And then I just thought, my editors will have my back. Lawyers at NPR, if they need to get involved, will have my back. I'm very grateful to work for a major news organization um, that answers only to our listeners and our readers and our audience who fund us. That's who I answer to. And that frees me up enormously as a journalist just to focus on the story and the questions I need to ask and trying to be as fair and as accurate as I can. And uh, you know, the coda to that is that, to their credit, my editors did stand with me. I didn't give any interviews about that. I, there were a lot of requests to come on the cable news shows and wherever and comment on it. And I really wanted our journalism just to stand yes. on its own. And so we aired that full interview with Pompeo unedited, not even a single um or ah uh, excised. Um, and only our CEO commented, John Lansing, and he said, we will not be intimidated. And he was right. Well, Michael writes, I loved it when Mary Louise interviewed some muckety-muck who addressed her as Mary. Ms. Kelly instantly said, my name's Mary Louise, <laughs> eliciting an apology from the stuffed shirt. That's Mary Louise. Don't take no guff. <laughs> We're talking with Mary Louise Kelly, and so are you. 866-733-6786 is the number to call to do so. You can email forum at kqed.org or post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with All Things Considered host Mary Louise Kelly about reporting, parenting, her hearing loss, her life, and her life choices. She's written a book called It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. And if you want to join the conversation with your questions for Mary Louise Kelly, your thoughts about some of the things that she's been saying about her life experiences as a journalist, as a parent, you can do so by emailing forum at kqed.org, posting on kqed.org. KQED Forum at KQED Forum on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or by calling 866-733-6786. Shay in San Francisco, you're on. Hi. I just wanted to say I love how you speak so unabashedly about the contradictions in life and your own life. And I wanted to ask if you could speak on a memory where even though the contradiction of, you know, life was present, you found it spiritually affirming or maybe, you know, you found it one of those moments where you're like, aha, yeah, I am still on that path that I've put myself on and this is affirming that. Yeah. Um, Thank you for that question. So here's one that stands out. When my youngest son, Alexander, was two, We took him, as you do, to the pediatrician for his age two checkup, and she noticed um, that he wasn't talking at all. Um, Like, he'd never, he didn't babble, there was no mama, there was no dada, there was no baby talk, no nothing. And I could tell that he understood us. Um, I could tell that he was smart. He just hadn't talked, and I figured he would talk when he was ready. Well, our pediatrician disagreed, and among the things she advised me that day was we would need to start intensive speech therapy pronto, like several mornings a week, and do all these exercises with him when we weren't at therapy to continue the, um, to continue his, you know, and try to bolster his prom- his progress. And I didn't have the kind of job then or now where I could devote several mornings a week to speech therapy. And so I took a year's unpaid leave. And it was my plan to come back to NPR, but I, they didn't hold my beat for me. They didn't hold my desk for me. It wasn't clear that there was going to be any opening to come back to. And one day while I was out on this leave, um, very grateful to be with my son and to be able to make that decision, um, but also really, really missing work that I loved and that had been going well, I ran into a competitor from another news organization who... I was walking down the sidewalk as I was pushing my son in the stroller to the park. And I called out her name to say hi. And she didn't recognize me. And I suddenly saw myself through her eyes and thought, you know, I look like this total has-been. And I've got applesauce in my hair. And, you know, she looked fabulous in the way she always had in this great suit. And we chatted for a few minutes. And then she said, well, it was lovely to see you. I'll tell everyone I bumped into you. I got to go. I have an interview at the White House. And she hopped in a taxi and zoomed off. And I felt like she just slapped me when she hadn't. She was lovely. But I just thought, God, she didn't recognize me. And I'm not sure I recognize myself. And I spent the rest of the day, I think, beating myself up for, you know, not so much the the choice to stay home with my son, but just why couldn't I do everything? Why couldn't I, you know, manage to find a way to hang on to my career? And when I ran into this woman again, 
I don't know, months, years later, um, my son had started talking. He did talk when he was ready. I had gone back to the newsroom. They had given away my beat, but there was a new one, and I started covering the Pentagon. And I ran into this woman again, and she recognized me, and we chatted for a few minutes, and then as we were turning to go, she said, hey, wait, I need to tell you, I cried all day after the last time I ran into you. And I was like, what? I cried all day. Why would you cry all day? You had every, like, you know, you, you had it all going on. You had it all figured out. And she said, no, I I was stuffed into Spanx and shoes I couldn't walk in and off to do this interview that I can't even remember what it was anymore. It was so many you know, news cycles ago. And I had dropped my own baby off at daycare. And a stranger was taking my baby to the park that day. And I thought, what am I doing with my life? And I said, wow. God, you and me both, sister. Like, you know, we both spent this wasted a day beating ourselves up for failing to do what is not, in fact, possible. Be in the playground with your kid at the same time as you're at the White House doing the interview that you've tried to get. And I just thought, you know, if I could have seen myself through your eyes, I would have been so much gentler on myself and vice versa. And that's, I know... You, yeah. you, you know, our, our caller asked for an affirming memory, and I think that's that's one of them. We're all maybe doing a little bit better than we give ourselves credit for. Yeah. Also, I really appreciated your reflections on how how we make peace with the things that that we've missed while we've chosen something else for us, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. also how impossible it is to know when something will be the last time it happens. Um, and that that's also kind of okay. It just reminds you to be really present, I think. Yeah. Oh, totally. And if I may, I'll you know answer that question in, in one other just short way to say I'm a reporter. So my instinct when I have a question that I'm grappling with is to go interview somebody about it. And while writing this book, I cornered my older son, James, in the hallway outside his bedroom one day and said, you know, was there a time when you needed me and I didn't come because I was working? And he looked hard at me and then he looked down at the floor for a long time, like a long time. Like I was getting worried he was really about to lay it lay it on me. And um, he finally looked back up and said, there probably was, Mom, but I can't remember. And also, could I have $15 for, for Chipotle? <laughs> I was like, okay, well... We must all be doing all right then. If that's if that's the all that is required for reparations is fifteen bucks for Chipotle, you're you're fine. You're yeah, turned out just fine. There are a couple moments like that when you're worried about your absences and they don't even notice that you were totally absent. Totally, totally. Like I left the state for three days, four days, and James, same son was calling asking me to move my car on the driveway, and when I told him I couldn't, no, because I'm not in the same state and haven't been all weekend, I realized he didn't even notice. (laughs) (laughs) Mary Louise Kelly's book is It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. This listener tweets, I have had hearing tests where I'm told I'm basically okay. I'm 55 and I know I don't hear nearly as well as before. Some of it was self-inflicted, no doubt. Nonetheless, my hearing is less than optimal. Thanks for addressing this. Mm, Thanks for writing. You talk about how your hearing is going to keep evolving, that you recognize that the hearing loss is continuing, that you've asked yourself more than once, 
how long I can do this, this job that you love. What are you, what are you grappling with? What are you weighing in that question? I, my hearing continues to worsen a little bit every year. They have to adjust the settings on my hearing aids and um, they don't know when or if it will stabilize. Um, that's, I mean, that's the thread of the book that everything evolves, um, yes. whether it's your hearing or your kids growing up and, and outgrowing their childhood and, and the house that you raised them in. Um, in the case of my hearing, just trying to figure out you know, I've covered protests recently. I'm just, I'm back recently from another trip to Iran that we did earlier this year and trying to interview people in the middle of a huge crowd that are chanting, um, in that case, death to America, death to Israel were the chants. And we're trying to interview people to figure out, do you really believe that? And if so, why? Um, and it's really hard for me to hear people uh, in a crowd like that and then file and hear the questions that are being asked at me uh, when I'm doing a live interview from the field. So I had two ACE producers with me. They figured out a, a different workaround, and I did it in a slightly different way than uh, one of my colleagues might do um, in, in covering an assignment like that, and it worked fine. But yeah, I do wonder whether it's my hearing or just, you know, getting older. Um and getting more resistant to, you know, the latest tech and everything else. Like at a certain point, it'll be time for me to hang up my cleats. I don't think I'm nearly there yet, but I don't know quite how you, how you know. Um, yeah, I don't know how you know. Um, so I'd love to hear anybody's, anybody's thoughts on that as well. Well, this is our comments. My sons are young adults now, and I've apologized to them for my mothering misdeeds. They poo-pooed it, but it felt good to acknowledge my failings. And please know being an empty nester and having adult children is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I am so glad to hear it. Thank you. That's reassuring. You have segmented your life in a way the metaphor you use is a play in three acts. Act one being the life before kids. Act two is raising kids. Act three is now. And you've talked about some things that are sort of interesting and revealing. You said that you confess to a quiet fear that it will prove anticlimactic. But at the same time, you talk about how your contract renewal is up, is is coming Mm -hmm. up soon and so on. And so I'm really curious. I know we cannot predict what our act three is going to be like, but, but what are some of the things that that you are weighing so that Act 3 is satisfying for you? Yeah. Um, So I have recently, uh, just in the last couple of months, renewed my NPR contract. So you're all stuck with me for another three (laughs) years. Um, And I can't wait and I'm excited and still feel like all of the things that drew me to this field and the challenge of this work remain true. And I still feel really excited to get up and come do it every day, um, you know, when and if that ever lessens, it will be time to, to move on to something else. But that's that's where I am right now. And I think the pleasure of being in, I'm now in my early 50s, I just turned 52. I'm a little slower and getting a little grayer than I was, you know, 20 years ago. But I kind of know what I'm doing. I'm good at what I do. And it's taken me a while to have the confidence to say that. Um, I'm still very much learning in this job every day, and that's a delight and a joy. Um, 
but I'm good at what I do and I still have the energy to do it. And that's a really, really lovely place to be at in midlife. And it goes a long way toward compensating for, okay, maybe I don't run a mile as fast as I used to. Um, but uh, but I'm at, I'm at a good place right now and um, feel very, very grateful for work that feels meaningful and gives purpose to my days. I can hear it. The Cisner writes, thank you, Mary Louise, for exempli- exemplifying a good and brave way to live. Mm. Thank you. We are talking with Mary Louise Kelly, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And let me go to caller Suzanne in Berkeley. Hi, Suzanne. You're on. Hi, Mina. Thank you so much, Mary Louise. I'm a huge fan, and your book completely resonates Um I work internationally primarily with USAID and the State Department and Mm -hmm. confront those challenges all the time about the staying and leaving and now have teenagers as well and one off to college. So this is really hitting home. Yeah. Um, But but I had a question. You've been so generous about our ways in which we make these choices. And I have to say that when I've been based abroad, I took a position and was based in Asia. Um, I was really shocked to find out that so many of my female colleagues and friends seem to be more judgmental <laughs> um, and less supportive, actually, than than some of my male colleagues. And I wondered if you had a similar experience. I, I've been trying to work that out in my head for the last six years. I'm now based here, but continue mm. to travel and work um, right. and am away in dangerous places. And that, that judgment seems to continue. Anyway, yeah. thank you. Uh, thank you for the question. Um, I I have had um, bosses like I'm thinking. I'm thinking of a, a very senior editor here in the NPR newsroom. Um, earlier in my career, she was much senior to me and had chosen not to have children, and sat me down um, as I was applying um, for a correspondent job and said, "Yeah, but you also want to have kids, and you can't have both. So you know what? You choose." <laughs> And I thought, do I have to? Like, I would really like to do both. Can't I try? Um, but I have, I have heard that. Um, and I, you know, I respect her view and her decision. And, um, you know, can only say that what worked for me was different. And um, I find I am much less judgmental now than I was uh, 10 years ago, certainly than 20 years ago, where I was, you know, so gung-ho and all in and will confess to have been, you know, probably not the most open-minded to people, you know, whether men or women who made different choices than I did. And now I, you know, now I've lived a little and <laughs> seen quite how hard it is and quite, you know, how no choice is perfect and we're all doing our best. And as I, as I said earlier, I've, I've you know, cycled in and out and found that the choices that I made at a certain point just didn't work as my kids got older um, and then didn't work again once we got a couple years from there. Um, I have been fortunate in that my, you know, a few editors like that one I just described aside, most people have been very supportive of my choices. I think for me, the the kind of constraints have been ones that I set for myself. And I, I look now at my younger colleagues coming up and think, how can I make this, you know, how can I help you feel less guilty about the fact that you're human and they're only 24 hours a day and you can't be in two places at once? And I try to do little things. Um, like when my kids were little, 
I always felt slightly, you know, not secretive about, but like slightly embarrassed about if, you know, I had to take them to the orthodontist or the dentist or the pediatrician or whatever. And I would, you know, tell people I might be an hour late because there's a doctor's appointment, but I wasn't saying for who. And now I'm very, very open about marking on the calendar that all of the producers and editors who I work with can see, you know, Mary Louise will be late. She is not reachable. Don't even think about it. And it's because she needs to take her kid to the orthodontist or whatever it is. And I try to do that to role model like this is okay. This is the way you do a demanding job in a way that's sustainable Um, because there are things you have to deal with with your family. And we shouldn't Mm -hmm. feel embarrassed or secretive about that. It's a small thing, but those small little shifts in culture, I hope make a difference for somebody who's trying to figure out how, you know I'm hanging on by my toenails here people like <laughs> I'm trying to, to hold on to this job that I love and be true to my family and just little small gestures of kindness like that go so far I know they have for me well Scott writes when she isn't wearing hearing aids does she find solace or comfort in that silence some people find silence blissful but others try to stay away from it I love silence, particularly with two teenagers and a large shaggy Bernadoodle in the house. Um, <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> I will take all the silence I can get. And in seriousness, I really, I do mean that. I, um, when I walk or when I run, for example, I could wear hearing aids. I could listen to stuff. I don't. I take it all out. I don't listen to podcasts. I don't listen to NPR. I just take that time. Um, to sit with my own thoughts. And it's often, you know, just the most beautiful part of my day. Yeah. Silence is beautiful. Silence is also very powerful. Scott's point is actually making me think of the fact that I'm very nearsighted. And and when I take out my, my contacts and the lights are so beautiful and blurry, and I think, wow, no one can see this unless you are highly nearsighted <laughs> like me. <laughs> well, Anne writes, if only the media were full of Mary Louise types. Humble, oh. smart, fair. I am a huge fan. Y'all are so nice. Can I call into KQED every day? Anytime. <laughs> Anytime, Mary Louise Kelly. <laughs> this has been so fun. So fun. Thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. And the pleasure was mine. Thank you, Mina. Mary Louise Kelly's book is It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. My thanks to producer Grace Wan for producing today's segment and to you, our listeners, for joining the conversation with your questions and comments. As always, you're listening to Forum, coming to you today from KVCR and the Inland Empire. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.